I think it's pretty safe to assume that for the vast majority of our listeners, the first word they think of when they think of the George Sanders show uh, is handsome because we're a couple of handsome chaps. goes without saying. Uh, the second word, I think, to describe us would be liars. Um, and I say that now because we spent a lot of time on the last episode talking about our Seattle International Film Fest- Festival uh, extravaganza, two-part episode uh, that was going to be coming down the pipeline. And uh, here we are recording two weeks later and the festival started on Thursday and uh, we're not going to talk about it at all tonight. Are we, Sean? Uh, well, we might talk about it a little bit. <laughs> well, it's going to be tough to talk about for a number of reasons. One, I was out of town all week uh, watching baseball games in California. Um, Sean's been agonizing over his impending move. I haven't seen a single film that's playing at the festival. Sean, you saw one of them. I saw um, one. It was good. And, but the one film you saw is embargoed and we can't actually talk about it. So um, <laughs> I, I can say I can say up to 75 words about it. Okay, so you've already said three. Yeah. Um, well, that yeah. So in the meantime, we do plan on talking about Sif somewhere down the line on this show. Probably next time on the show. Um but this week, apropos of absolutely nothing, uh, we're going to go to Africa, and uh, we're going to talk about two films set in that uh, country, continent. <laughs> we decided gonna... that we couldn't, we couldn't go to the Seattle Film Festival until we shot an elephant. Right, in our pajamas. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how he got in our pajamas, I'll never know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> today, uh, we're going to be talking about Howard Hawks uh, and his film, Hatari, exclamation mark, um, and Clint Eastwood's 1990 film, White Hunter, Black Heart. Um, Clint Eastwood will also be our person of the week, and we will pick our Cinema Central white people in Africa films um, to fill in this gap. And I think it's a fun little... I think it's a fun little show we got lined up here. So um, I'm sure you know, I'm sure it's there is some way to connect it to to you know the present time. Is it <laughs> is it it's, is it Clint Eastwood's birthday or something? Does he have a new movie coming out? Uh, he does Jersey Boys. He's doing Jersey Boys. Really? Uh, yeah, I think that's coming around Christmas time. T- today is Frank Capra's birthday. Oh. Well, he he knew both Howard Hawks and John Huston. There you go. Yeah, that's that's there, there you go. go. It is entirely appropriate that um, we talk about white people in Africa movies this week. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, we're, yeah. I don't I don't know. What to, you 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 killed my momentum there. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You can cut that out. Um, well, without further ado, let's get to our discussion of Hatari. Hatari! Hatari! 
Mamma mia! Okay, that was a clip from Howard Hawks' film, Hatari, um, which uh, <laughs> you and I were marveling before we started recording that uh, this is our 36th episode of The George Sanders Show, um, and this is our first Howard Hawks film that we're going to be discussing uh, at length, which is pretty astounding. Um, you and I are both uh, professed Howard Hawks fans. We ran... Uh, Howard Hawks Festival or, you know, series at our uh, old theater when he, we were doing... He was easily our most played director. I think we played like eight Howard Hawks movies over yeah. the, the five years. And I've I've said for the last several years that he is my favorite director, um, you know, if I have to put my gun to bed, um, which I do uh, every Sunday after I do the show. <laughs> I, I weep in the shower with a gun to my head. Um <laughs> But yeah, so it's it's an, and the other interesting thing is that I had never seen Atari um, before this discussion show episode, um, and there's a reason for that, and I think we'll get into it. Um, but uh, you know, Howard Hawks has so many wonderful films, as as you just said. We ran a bunch of them. We ran The Big Sleep. We ran Red River. We ran Twentieth uh, Century, which isn't that good. And we Twentieth you know, Century we ran is a- awesome. <laughs> it's my least favorite. We're in His Girl Friday and uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and Rio Bravo. Rio Bravo, yeah. Uh, oh no, and uh, El Dorado. Too, El Dorado. Did we? did we do? Yeah. Did we do El Dorado and not Rio Bravo? No, we did. I think we did both. Yeah. Maybe well, not. Did, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, let, we we let. did. We ran a lot of Howard Hawks movies. We did. Um, so, anywho. Uh, this film is, is, is late period Howard Hawks, um, came out in 1962 and, uh, it's, it's a really interesting picture. Um, Howard Hawks basically got a bunch of people together and said, uh, let's go to Africa and, uh, make a movie up while we, while we do it and we'll, we'll trap animals and what have you. And so basically he took John Wayne, uh, he took red buttons, he took a, a bunch of people and, they filmed a movie that's very similar to a lot of the late period Howard Hawks films where it's a bunch of people um, kind of just hanging out for the most part. Um, interspersed with that is them capturing uh, animals, zebras and um, all, you know, all, all manner of, of African beasts. Um, and the, the roles they play, they're, they're basically ca- capturing these animals to send them to zoos. Um, the drama hits when a photographer shows up that... Um, to capture this, you know, manly expedition that they go on. Uh, but it turns out, dun, 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 the photographer is a woman, which uh, throws a wrench in the gears. Uh, John Wayne doesn't like it, thinks she's too fragile, thinks things are going to, you know, get a little squirrely. Um, but she's, she's tough. You know, she's a, she's a Hoxian woman, so to speak. Um, and anyway... If you like Howard Hawks films and you like, you know, like I said, the late period stuff like Real Bravo, El Dorado, where it is kind of just like people hanging out in a room, not doing too much, really. Um, I don't see how you cannot like this film. Do you like this film, Sean? I, I really like this film. It's, it's one of my 
I mean, it, you know, I say it's one of my favorite Howard Hawks movies, but there's probably like 15 movies that are in that conversation. But I, I, I like it more than its reputation, I think. Yeah. And I, I think it's it's generally considered a, a fine movie, but it, but not up there with like uh, with His Girl Friday or Rio Bravo. But I, I think it's it's in that class. Like it's it's I really enjoy watching this movie, and it's uh, like the the word the word that you try to avoid when talking about it is is relaxed because it's so obviously relaxed. Like the the movie is over two and a half hours long and it's not in a hurry to get anywhere and there's not really anywhere it's going to, no. but it, but it never feels long or boring or, or drawn out. We were, we were talking before the show about just how easy it is to watch. This is, this might be one of the most, except for the thing I'll get to in a second, but one of the most watchable movies. I mean, it's just so effortless and, and and I think I think part of that is is that it it is deceptively structured, like it, it it feels like it's just kind of meandering along with no real purpose. And there's only like the barest elements of, of a plot. There's uh, there's uh, there there are two women, and then there and so therefore there are two romantic situations because you can't have women among men without romance developing. And right. uh, but I really like how they handle that in this film. Yeah, it's it's very not dramatic. Yeah, and it kind of plays. There are two different relations. Two, yeah, like you said, there are two different potential pairings, or or you know, there are two women, so two of them are gonna get in a relationship. And I and I like how um, the movie at least played with my expectations, especially um, the relationship between um, the young woman that's kind of grown up with all of these men. And there are two young guys, young bucks who are kind of vying for her attention. And and there's a Brandy. Brandy is the girl and the guys are the, the German and the Frenchman. Yes. And what I love about it is that neither of them get her and it's red buttons who gets her. Um, which I think is, uh, I didn't see it coming. And, you know, I was expecting just this kind of battle of wills between these guys. And um, and I thought that was really great because Red Buttons plays, you know, Red Buttons. He's, he's you know, a goofy, you know, wisecracking um, sidekick. And to see him get the girl is, I think, really fun. Um, and also, I think my favorite scenes in the movie, um, going to the, talking about the other relationship here, which is, the John Wayne relationship with the photographer played by um, Elsa Martinelli um, is the scenes between Martinelli and red buttons where they're discussing John Wayne and he's trying to give her advice on how to kind of woo John Wayne. Um, And it's like you said, it's so relaxed and just natural. And it just, it just, there's a rhythm to it. That's just wonderful. And I love those scenes. Right, and there's and there's a rhythm to the whole movie, which uh, which I, I think is is what makes it so watchable. It, it it alternates between these these action scenes that are really exciting, and the stunts are are really performed by those actors. Like you actually see John Wayne out there attempting to lasso a rhino. Yeah, and and that's really cool, and it's really impressive, and these. Uh, and and these like really intense action sequences are are alternated with these scenes of life back in the camp that are kind of light and and comic and 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 fun, 
and it it just goes back and forth between these in, the, in this really mellow rhythm that just kind of sucks you in and keeps you going throughout the whole rest of the movie and and through the whole you know two hour and forty minute running time. Oh yeah, which it, it uh, the plot doesn't doesn't really build to a climax in in the way that you you like expect a traditional narrative to go with like a. You know, you have the setup and then the development and a complication and a, a climax and the denouement. It doesn't. It doesn't follow that at all. It's just kind of one thing after another, and then it it ends at the end of the the season. It follows a, a different kind of narrative structure. Well, and also it kind of it's it's climax, so to speak. Um, if it's totally kind of different from the rest of the film, um, it's much more. It, it's more of a screwball comedy kind of climax than I was expecting from it. I mean, well, the movie's funny throughout, but then it kind of, it builds to this kind of chase that's really goofy um, and hilarious. And, and, uh, but, but it's also really clever because it, it's basically merges the two halves of the movie into one. They, they end up chasing Elsa Martinelli down in the same way that they chase the animals down. They have like the two different vehicles and, and they're hunting her and they're kind of cornering her and trapping her in a space, just like they do with the zebras. Right, right. But, but they're shot completely differently. I mean, sure. you know, um, and, and going back to those action sequences, um, they're, they're fantastic. I mean, for action filmmaking, uh, even today, like it's, it's, it's exhilarating stuff because of course, no CGI, the cameras, you know, hanging off the edge, you're seeing these, you know, like a rhino running right towards the, you know, hitting the, the truck. Um, and it's, and it's really pulse pounding. Yeah. I mean, no, no insurance company would, would allow that today. No, no. Um, you know, Howard Hawks was just, you know, trying to get his rocks off and it's, and it's really exhilarating stuff and, and really impressive. It, it, um, it really elevates the film over, um, over, uh, a lot of the other Hollywood movies that were, were ostensibly shot or, or set in Africa. Like, uh, John Ford's Mogambo right. is, is similarly about like, uh, you know, traders like capturing animals. I think he captures animals or hunts animals in, in Africa and, the actual scenes with the animals are are obviously like like B roll second unit footage and like rear projection in to the film and and it's really kind of destroys the the reality of the film. I, I still really like Magambo, but right. but this is is a whole other category of of realism and it's it's really really neat. Yeah, it's really impressive. Um, my one caveat, and this is just. You know, I got to say it, you know, I, I have to bring in my vegan ideals here and, you know, it was hard to watch. Um, and I, I don't approve, uh, you, you know, I, I, I'm not a fan of zoos, but you know, at least they're not, you know, killing the animals. Like no, no animals are, are, nope. are hurt in the, the course of this film. That is true. At least that not true. not that we see on screen. Who knows what happened uh, in actuality? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure Howard Hawks went out and shot a rhino. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I doubt the Humane Society was monitoring the the action right. like they do now. But but um, still, but still, the whole the whole point of their of their existence is that they are nonviolent towards the animals. And one thing that that uh, there's like a real kinship with the animals that they have. And and the thing that is really appealing about Elsa Martinelli 
is is her relationship with the animals that she likes them just as much as they all do and they're never you know they have they have trouble they get angry at the rhino that that you know stabs the indian but they don't want to go kill the rhino right there's there's like an understanding of 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 animal nature and and you know that they're in their world and they're all in the same wavelength right yeah but you know watching it through a 21st century lens when you see the beginning of the film and it's doing the opening credits and it says this film could not be made without the cooperation of the government the people and the animals of you know of africa or whatever and uh tanyanyika is where it was shot which yeah. isn't a country anymore the, i don't think the animals were uh you know, I don't think the animals signed away their cooperation to be in this movie. Um, is my problem with it. But, but that being said, um, are you are you anti zoo? I am so I'm anti zoo up the wazoo. Absolutely, I, 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 I am as well. Zoos. My wife really likes to go to zoos, and and they just make me sad. So I I don't. No, I I I am appalled by zoos I, I they make me really really depressed um but let's not talk about that let's talk about this movie and how much fun it is um before i start getting all because in the movie uh, at least we're seeing the animals in in the wild more or less even right. if they're getting captured and sent off to zoos <laughs> right so as we said this is kind of a film that's uh you know people hanging out and and it's a kind of a menagerie of sorts of of all these different personality types and i think for my money, this is this might be one of Hawks's greatest uh, groups of characters. Um, and like you said, there's the there's the French guy and the German guy, and a lot of them are are kind of just specifically, you know, their nationality or whatever. Um, but I really like all of these characters, even those the small ones that don't have a lot of lines or anything, like the uh, the Mexican guy or whatever right. who's got this really great mustache and. Um, he doesn't do much, but he's in a lot of, or he doesn't have a lot to say, but he's like in the background and, and then he has this one shot where he comes in, they're going to go out dancing or something. And he comes in wearing a tuxedo and looking really dapper. And, uh, all of these characters that are just kind of, you know, you see in the background, like smoking a cigarette while John Wayne's playing cards or whatever, they really add a sense to this community that you're seeing on screen, this, this kind of family that's, that's cropped up in, in this odd lo- you know, location. Yeah, it, I mean, it really feels like a, a group of people went off into the wilderness to make a movie and, yeah. had, and had a really great time doing it. And, and you get that sense. Um, you know, I, I, think, I think it's interesting to have, you know, pretty much everyone is from a different country. There's like, there's the Italian woman, the, the Mexican, the Frenchman, the German, the, the English slash Indian guy. There's uh and John Wayne is Irish. John Wayne is Irish. And then red buttons is uh, from, from Brooklyn or from the Bronx. I can't right. remember. Uh, but you know, uh, all of those people are white. Yes. Depending on on you know the genetic background of the Mexican, but for all intents and purposes, they're they're white European North American people, and they are helped every step of the way by local Africans, almost none of whom have any lines throughout the movie or even so much as a name. And yeah, I, don't, yeah. I mean it's. It's really, uh, it's it's very much a white person's view of Africa, 
And it's a white person in 1962's view of Africa, which is mainly it's a place for white people to go and take animals back to Europe or back to America. Well, yeah. And there's a lot of, you know, there, you know, you can't help but think about slavery you know when you're watching it um and 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 you know just yeah the it's a white white person's playground you know and i think we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to uh the second film of our show too but um right which is is more explicitly about the kind of ideology that hatari accidentally represents right Right. Yeah. This is much more of its time. And that film is, is looking back on a, on a time period. Um, so, so it sees it through a different lens, but, um, yeah, I mean the, the, the most, the most uncomfortable scene in the film. And I wonder if this is the one that you, that you talked about is the one where, uh, where Elsa Martinelli gets initiated into the local African tribe. (laughs) Yeah. That's a little rough. (laughs) Yeah. That is, is, it is very hard to, to take. And, you know, I, I generally will be okay with uh, with uh, with yeah, well, <laughs> with certain types of blackface, like like Fred Astaire's in in Swing Time, where it's meant not as like a, a derision of a person, but as uh, a tribute to Bill Robinson. I, I would be forgiving of that. Right. Or uh, like Buster Keaton's in the Playhouse, where he's where he's you know just merely being the embodiment of a style, as opposed to necessarily an endorsement of uh, racial politics. Uh, it's in 1962. It's it's a little late for it's that. It's a little late in the game. It's a yeah. little late in the game for uh, for that. Uh, yeah. And I, and I, I, and Howard Hawks is a lot of things as a director, and he he is one of if not the greatest directors of all time, but, but racial politics was not his, uh, his forte. Let's just say he's not a particularly enlightened individual. No, absolutely not. And, you know, politically, you know, I pretty much disagree with, uh, him as a person on, on many fronts and a lot of his movies, you know, I mean, like, I, I would. I'm much more ideologically inclined towards like Fred Zinnemann's, you know, High Noon. Personally, like in terms of my, um, you know, the themes that movie's going for or whatever. Um, but as but as a filmmaker, as a pure artist, you know, real Bravo every time. And I, you know, and that's kind of what I really like. I mean, well, the 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 interesting thing about Hawks is that the uh, the idea of of community that his, his films put across and, and Hattari is a great example of this, of, of these professional people living and working together and, and, and doing so in such a, uh, a particular way is, is counter to any kind of, of regressive racial politics. Like there's, there is no reason for the Africans to be excluded from this little community of, of, of trappers in the film. Right. Right. So there's this this tension in his work, and and it's it's I I'm pretty sure it's it's simply because he is uh, you know a product of the early 20th century. Like oh yeah, yeah. He's just a man of his time, and I I think that uh, you know I I don't I think you could make this movie today, you know, 50 years after it came out, and have it not be racist. Oh, I I think it's yeah, it's very easy. I mean that you just incor- yeah, you incorporate some of, you know, <laughs> the locals into into your group and and you don't put in 
anybody in blackface. I mean, I think you know yeah. that's well. It's, it's is that is that so hard? It's it's very clearly trying to go for like this this pan white uh, right. uh, community by having people of all different nationalities. And if you were to make it today, you would have a a more diverse sampling of people instead right. of just from a bunch of different European or North American countries, you'd have them from actually all over the world. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you don't put the female lead in blackface. <laughs> Rule number one, people. Uh, Although, I mean, it is followed by like an interesting twist, which is that, that when she gets back to, to the compound, in order to take off the makeup, we, we see her covered in, in white faces. In, in face. She's wearing cold cream. So it's, you know, it, it, even that kind of undercuts the, the kind of uh, the racial idea behind blackface because it's still like this mask that she's putting on. She's, you know, she's appalled that they made her black. So now she's overdoing it and making herself white. And, and both of them are, are phony. Right. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, that's a good point. Um, uh, well, speaking of undercutting, and this is a, a more lighthearted version of it, um, I really like. I really like what happens to John Wayne throughout this movie, <laughs> and there are a lot of comic element, comic scenes with John Wayne in this movie where he, um, kind of loses some of his stoicism, like he. In that scene, he he kisses her and he gets, you know, the cream all over his face. There's a scene of him, and I love Howard Hawks for putting this in, of John Wayne milking a goat <laughs> and then the goat kicking him and, and a bucket of goat's milk uh, splattering all over John Wayne's face. Um, this is a really fun role for John Wayne. I mean, not that he's he's always, you know, he's not Clint Eastwood. He's not always, you know, stiff and steely or whatever but um well he does have this you know this very manly patriarchal persona he's got that swagger and stuff and it's nice to see that kind of undercut a little bit throughout this film as they they do these kind of you know (laughs) goofy things to him yeah it just it's it's like every 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 one of his friends all of his characters knows that this is the kind of persona that he wants to adopt and they let him they play along with him right exactly that's that's while 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 they you know deflate him at every opportunity they get but but like red buttons in particular is always kind of mock deferential to to john wayne's poses right and that's what makes those scenes between him um and martinelli so so awesome is because they're he's kind of just breaking down john wayne or quote unquote john wayne you know um to her you know and i think that's really especially if you've seen a lot of john wayne stuff let me ask you about the german and the frenchman now this the the relationship between the two of them reminded me a lot of the relationship in red river between the two young men who are uh kind of uh you know, chest thumping to each other. And it has these kind right. of Mo- Montgomery uh, Clift and, and John Ireland. Yeah. And that movie is much more ex- explicit in its, uh, homosexual <laughs> undertones. Um, but, uh, when, you know, helped, they... helped by, you know, the fact that, that we know more about Montgomery Clift than well, audiences did in 1948. Absolutely. But I mean, that's, I mean, nobody 
today watching Red River and seeing them comparing their pistols, the size of their guns <laughs> to each other, gets anything, you know, doesn't read between the lines there. You know what I mean? Sure. Whether or not they know about Montgomery Cliff. But did you get a, a feeling of, of, of like underlying homosexual tension between those two guys, especially once they realize that they're not going to get the lady? Um I, I didn't there, really. I, I didn't did really you, oh, get okay. a sexual vibe between them. I, I got I got more of a of like a, a healing the the wounds of World War Two kind of vibe. Of I can see that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it just it seemed to me just like a a male friendship that was not sexual. And there's well, and there's and there's a fine line there. And I think I think Hawks would always say that he you know didn't ever put any gay stuff in his movies. Oh sure, but, uh, but I, I still think there was I, yeah absolutely. But I, I feel like inadvertently I, it can be read and and the way that their relationship pans out mm-hmm. and they end up once the once the season's over and everybody's leaving, they go off together. They're going back to Europe together, and and they say you know. Oh, one of you know Fritz or whatever. <laughs> one of them, uh, you know, he know, he knows a girl, uh, you know, there or whatever, and 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 it's implied that they're going to fight over her or share her or whatever. But yeah, it's they're they're going to go halfsies. Yeah, they're going to go halfsies. You know, um, I, I yeah, I just could I could I could see it as a as a bit more of a uh, lustful relationship between those two guys especially when they're wearing those those tight sweaters in the evening you know and uh smoking yeah i <laughs> i wasn't i'm not so much uh the the age differences between the the men and the and the women uh kind of bothered me not not so much between john wayne and, and elsa martinelli although there's there's a big age gap there but the one the just the whole kind of plot line around revolving around brandy I agree. I, Most, mostly be, just because she's she's a, a girl that has grown up in this camp. Like her father was one of them. And so all of these men have known her since she was a child. And now she's 22 years old, which is, you know, plenty old enough to be involved in a relationship. But just kind of switching from that kind of paternal or fraternal relationship to a romantic one, even if it's with Red Buttons, who's like the least threatening person <laughs> in the world. Uh, is still really creepy to me. It, no, it's I I got that too. Um, yeah, it's, it's not like a switch is turned all of a sudden. You're like, well, she's of age. You know, it's like, don't you remember when she was like six with you know whatever? Yeah, it, yeah. I definitely got a a real gross vibe from it. And and you know the two young guys. I mean, no, the Frenchman. You know, he the, shows up. The, the Frenchman is new, and and the German has only been there for like three years. Yeah, so those two, but but yeah, Red Buttons, who is the one is the one that eventually you know wins and you know wins the day, so to speak, and and um, and he's old enough to a, be her father. And he's it's, it's really, really old. Creepy. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I know. I I got that too. That was that was kind of unsettling. Um, so, but but like you said, it's Red Buttons, and and it's not especially coming coming from Red Buttons. There's no real. It, there's no sexuality to it you know like the right. the the german guy he you know he zips up her dress and he mentions later i didn't notice what kind of body she had or whatever and they're talking about her as like you know that kind of grossness and red buttons is never never crosses that line he's just like he says oh i've kind of got a crush on her or something at one point you know yeah. it's not a, it's not a sexual relationship between wayne and, and martinelli no so let, <laughs> let, let me let me ask you this how, how old do you think john wayne is 
without, in this movie? Yeah, without looking it up. I mean, how, Wayne, how old does he look to you? How old does he look? Yeah. He's got to be 55. That is exactly right. He was 55. Hey! He was 55 when this movie was released. And, I should and work at the circus or a carnival and to, guess people's age. To me, he looks he looks even older, and and that seems really old for him to be romancing Elsa Martinelli. Who's oh yeah, she's got to be like twenty four or something, right? Yeah, she was uh, twenty seven. Oh damn! So uh, so almost thirty years. But but yeah. here. Uh, here is this interesting fact. You know, Wayne Wayne's fifty five years old at this point. This year. Tom Cruise turns uh, 52 years old. Yeah. Uh, John Wayne looks about 20 years older in this movie than Tom Cruise does in his last movie. Well, that's because his thetans are out of alignment. I mean, you know, it, when you get into like, you know, OT level seven in Scientology, there's this, this kind of cleansing thing that happens to your pores where you kind of go into this state of like suspended aging. <laughs> my, my 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 point is that that this this kind of age difference seems really shocking to us because you know fifty five in the nineteen sixties looks much older than fifty five does today. Like no, nobody really bats an eye when Tom Cruise is the romantic lead in a movie in in two thousand fourteen because he's Tom Cruise. Right. Well, I think so. Yeah. I, yeah. I know. Yes, I agree with you. It's still kind of creepy when he's like in, in Mission Impossible Three. He was married to to Carrie Russell, who's my age. Well, I mean, to be fair, you're like forty nine. So. Hey, that is <laughs> that is not true. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I know. Yeah, I mean, I think Tom Cruise is kind of a an exception to a degree. I mean, he looks. I mean, I don't know who's who else is Tom Cruise's age nowadays. Uh, uh, let's see. Well, uh, Tom Hanks Ethan is Hawk? uh 58 years old, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, he turns 58 this year, but yeah, I, I, t- I totally agree. I mean, it, it, it's they're two different kinds of people. And, I, I can uh, only look up actors named Tom. I'm, I'm sorry, um, <laughs> I have I have the the Tom MDB. I got. <laughs> A very useful resource, I must say. Anyway, um, it's 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 weird because you in the in this late studio era, you still have these stars that established themselves in the nineteen thirties, like Gary Cooper, Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne. Well, look at Cary Grant and something Cary like Grant. Charade, you know? exactly, um, and and they're still playing the romantic lead in these movies thirty years after they started, and there's these massive age differences between between the men and the women. And it's it it looks really weird for us watching these old movies. Like Charade is a great example of it, or uh, uh, Gary Funny Cooper face. and Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, or lots of Audrey Hepburn was always paired with men who were thirty years older than her for some reason. But uh, that's because she but, was too good for the men her age. <laughs> but that kind of thing is still going on today. Like our 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 starlets are very young, and our our male romantic leads are are pretty old. Yeah. So. I don't know. Give give John Wayne a break. That's what I'm saying. Leave John Wayne alone. Is, is that really the argument you should be making? Shouldn't you be making the other argument that uh, maybe we should be pairing today's older actors with uh, actresses that are of you know closer age, or that we should you know jettison 
Tom Cruise from leading, you know, romantic lead to, well, you know. I'm, I'm all for more relationships like Only Lovers Left Alive where you have Tilda Swinton and Tom Huddleston where the, the woman is older than the man. I think that's right. great. I think they were they were a fantastic couple on screen. So, yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh, what what do you think of of the Henry Mancini score? Because that's one of the kind of if anything is known about Hatari, it's the the Baby Elephant Walk. I love it. Yeah. Um, I just you know this movie cracks me up a lot. But when the, when they're running through town, when the elephants are running through town, and the horns are blasting, mm-hmm. uh, the trumpets are blaring, and they just like the little charge. Yeah. Every time they every time they cut to that. I just I just burst out laughing again. It's it's wonderful. It's absolutely great. I really I really loved the uh, the kind of interstitial music in the when they transition from the camp to a hunting sequence. They'll have shots of of the trucks driving across the horizon, and there's this kind of like mellow kind of rhythmic, you know, tune that he's got going. It's like it's low in the soundtrack. It's it's not like a little poppy thing like the Baby Elephant Walk, or and it's not like dramatic. Right. It just it it's that little music that serves as the the transition between the two halves of of the film just uh, keys me right into the rhythm of the story. Yeah, it's. I think it's I fantastic. Mean, everything's running on now. You know, and you know it's Lee Brackett. You know, has the screenplay credit, and you know we all know Lee Brackett from you know uh, other Howard Hawks pictures, um, Real Bravo, for example, and also you know the early drafts of the, the Empire Strikes Back. Um, you know, I don't know how much you know. As as we said, this movie was kind of made up on the fly, so I don't know how much um, Lee Brackett had to do with the well, shaping of this movie i assume uh, maybe, she was there on the safari I, I don't really know i didn't uh yeah actually bother to do any research so i couldn't i couldn't tell you i i assume that she was along for for the trip though well yeah and i and i think that you know even in a way that's even more impressive like um these scenes of of just two people having a conversation um very casual um had to be written to a degree and um and to do that on the fly as i'm assuming a lot of this was done um is is really impressive yeah well that's but that's, i'm sure hawks had a lot to do with that too yeah and it's howard hawks and it's also and it, it is also lee brackett like she she had a real talent for making you know stylized dialogue sound natural which is which is the thing the thing that I think of when I think of Howard Hawks's dialogue is it's it's always very writerly and very written, but it never sounds like it. Right. It's not. It's not a top. It's not. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's a great movie. You should t- check it out if you haven't seen. It. If you haven't seen Howard Hawks movies, or if you've only watched a couple, um, watch them all because <laughs> they're so good. Yeah. Um, uh, definitely. And 20th century it, it, is great. <laughs> well, wait, isn't there a Howard Hawks film that you're, you're not a fan of? Isn't there one that you you think is uh, not up to snuff? Or am I making that up? I think you're probably making that up. Okay. I thought everybody had like one Howard Hawks film that they just couldn't get behind. I thought you know, I, ha- I haven't maybe. seen uh, A Song Was Born, which I is the, 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 the musical <laughs> remake with, with Danny Kaye of, uh, of Ball of Fire. Yeah. Uh, I, I haven't, I haven't seen it. I well, don't know if it's any good. Danny Kay at all. That's, you know. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't seen any Danny Kay. I, 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 uh, I think gentlemen prefer blondes is overrated. 
Hmm. I, I, I like it, but I, it's not one of my top would, probably 20 Howard Hawks movies. I really like it. I mean, I've only seen it once uh, when we ran it, and I, but I really enjoyed it. I think it's a, a, a lot of fun. But yeah, I mean, I would, I, you know, I'd put Scarface, you know, Big Sleep, His Girl Friday, Real Bravo. I'd put all those ahead of it probably. Um, but I think it's better than To Have and Have Not. But, I, I love To Have and Have Not. Well, I'll I'll bring down Ernest Hemingway later in the show. So let's uh, right. let's take a little break. We're going to be listening to speaking of white people in Africa. Um, we're going to be playing music today from the collaborative album from Brian Eno and David Byrne, uh, "My Life in the Bush of Ghosts," which uh, uses a lot of African rhythm, um, and it's totally awesome. And they're two of the whitest people we can think of. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> David Byrne and Brian Eno with Jezebel Spirit, which probably has something to do with Hatari. Certainly. 
in in the news over the last couple of weeks, uh, I've really only got a, a couple of, of minor items. I don't know if I just haven't been paying attention to what's going on. I know you haven't because you've been in California where, where there is never any news. Uh, you, you know, here's my news. Uh, Giants and the A's are both in first place in their division. Uh, so bravo to them. Hey, good for them. Uh, well, the uh, the the Cannes Film Festival is the big thing in in the film world, and that got started this week. And people are watching movies there and writing about them, and they have very strong opinions. They certainly do. Yeah, and I I don't know about you, but I try to read as little about the films at the Cannes Film Festival as possible. Uh, yeah. It seems to me that the reactions coming out of the festival are always wrong. They're either too too negative or too positive or too uh, in between. They're never the right yeah. response. Yeah, I don't follow it much at all. I mean, I, I've read a little bit of like Mike D'Angelo's stuff, um, just just to see what's mostly just to see what's there, because you know, can can be a place you know where a lot of the films that will come down the pipeline um, that'll be talked about kind of have their premiere or whatever. So less, less to see what the reaction was, but more to just see like, Oh, there's this movie, but, but, but I, it's very little in, in my opinion. Yeah. It's like the, the stuff that plays at can like, like blue is the warmest color won the, the Palm d'Or last year. And that was a film that I, I didn't know anything about before it won the Palm d'Or. Right. And I, I probably wouldn't have watched it had it not, you know, continued to play at film festivals and get, you know, draw a lot of discussion and, and some, some positive reviews from, from people I liked. But I was gonna, I'm going to go off, you know, people's reactions at, at Toronto or New York or, or Vancouver more than sure. at Cannes. I think there's something about the water in the south of France that just drives all those people insane. So you're saying that Grace of Monaco is going to be the best of the year. Is that what you're saying? Probably <laughs> that, or or uh, uh, how to train your dragon too. Is it was that playing? Oh right, right. Or yeah. did that just open? Also Sith? playing it. I think it's also both. Uh, so the much more interesting for me was that uh, uh, my my favorite uh, writer about movies on the internet has written a novel, and it's going to be published this fall, and it's uh, by the uh, the self styled siren, who you apparently have never read, and you really should. Because she's awesome. I don't read about movies. <laughs> I don't read. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, if, I if, if you're going to read a blog about movies on the internet, you should read the 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 Sirens blog. She she's a really really fantastic writer, and uh, she has turned me on to so many movies over over the years of of reading her blog. Like uh, she was one of like the if she would recommend a movie, I would watch it, and invariably I would if I didn't like it at least i would find something interesting in the movie and she she comes at movies from a very different perspective than i do which always makes for for good reading well i'll take the end of cinema off of my uh bookmarks and i'll add self-styled siren that, uh, that, just would, for you, John. that would be wise <laughs> uh do you know what the novel's about uh, it's about it's like a, a romantic comedy set in the New York City repertory film scene of the late 1980s. Oh, that's fun! Yeah. So, Do we have a title? Do you have a title to give us the audience so we can uh, find this thing? I, I would if I you know had bothered to pull up that page. 
Let's see. It's it's uh it's called uh, Missing Reels, and it gets published in November, and you can pre-order it on Amazon, which I did. So. Hey, well, congratulations to you both. I'm very happy for you. <laughs> All right. Uh, so so speaking of books, uh, I for some reason I I bought uh, two copies of the same book, which which happens occasionally. I I had ordered a book over uh, over Christmas off of uh, Amazon. And was for- it Mein Kampf? No. Uh, and I f- forgot that I had it, and then I, I saw it in a used bookstore and bought it. So now I have two copies of uh, Thomas Schatz's uh, The Genius of the System. And so I tricked you into agreeing to read it over the summer. So we're going to do a little uh, George Sanders show book club thing where we're both going to read this book this summer. Yeah, uh, and if you want to read along, go for it. Um, yeah, and we'll probably we'll probably we'll, put. Yeah, we'll have uh, like some kind of contest this summer related to it, and then the winner will win my extra copy of the book, signed by Sean's wife. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's probably going to happen. We'll probably do that show in early August. Uh, so how long it takes you to read stuff people um sean it takes sean a long time um so you know get cracking now if you want if not you know yeah the, the and cliff notes will be available i'm i'm excited to read the book it's it's one of the the more you know acclaimed histories of studio area era hollywood uh, i actually started reading it the other day and and within like the first few pages it, it pissed me off so this it, oh, that's great yeah it could be uh it could be fun <laughs> it's gonna be a good show yeah i, I look forward to that uh and then uh on my last bit of news is is we actually had some uh listener feedback recently which we is which listeners? is we do apparently we have at least three oh, well, you... well, okay what's that did, did you say two of them uh, uh three i have oh, three yeah you have three three listener feedbacks yes i do oh my god Okay. Wait, where did these where did this feedback go? Uh well I got I got one comment on on my uh uh in an email from somebody who was uh corresponding with me about Hong Kong movies on my website and he had been listening uh-huh. to the George Sanders show and he uh he really liked the theme music and wondered what oh. what movie it was from and I said it wasn't from a movie, Mike wrote it. So, I I did. Well well not the well, theme music for this week's show. <laughs> no, but when when we're, when we're not playing like an actual song, where we are playing your own composition. That's right, made in Garage Band. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a funky little number. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's very sweet. That's 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 nice of them. And um, and and to balance that out, uh, another listener uh, who we've mentioned before, uh, uh, Rupert Pupkin speaks. Uh, uh, pointed out that you repeatedly mispronounced Jim Jarmusch's name on the last episode. Oh, really? How yeah. do you pronounce it? Uh, Jarmusch. 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 Yeah, you Jarmusch. Kept, Jarmusch. You kept saying Jarmusch. Jarmusch. And apparently that that really bothered Mr. Pumpkin. Uh, I'm sorry, Robert Pumpkin. Rupert. Uh, I. Rupert. Robert. Rupert. Roberto. Pumpkin. <laughs> Pumpkin? Have you not seen The King of Comedy? 
I'm just kidding. I'm playing up the fact that I mispronounce things, Sean. Oh, I don't understand at all. Your, your humor <laughs> is is beyond me. I know. Next level. I'm on the next level. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I apologize. You know, and I've, I, you know, I think I've made it pretty clear uh, from episode one that I have no idea what I'm talking about on this show. So um, it makes you know, me I, wonder I, if if he did the same thing in the Dead Man episode because I don't really remember. Uh, I probably. I mean, I I I think I've always said Jarmouche. Mm-hmm. Um, Weird. And I apo- I apologize. Uh, to everybody out there. Um, really, you should apologize to Jim Jarmish. I, that guy can go to hell. <laughs> I'll tell you that much right now. Quit making great movies, man. Yeah. And uh, our last bit of feedback was a, a suggestion from The Futurist that we uh, incorporate some more listener suggestions into the movies that we pick to maybe broaden our horizons. I'm I'm always down for that. Um, I, I think that's a wonderful idea. I mean, we can do. Um, I mean, we did the contest back in uh, the beginning of the show, right? When your when your brother was the only one who was listening, and so he won. <laughs> he did, and guess what? He's not listening anymore. So well, there you go. Um, yeah, we could definitely do like a contest or something to um, to pull us out of our you know ruts, as it, as it were. Um, We'll watch anything, out, you know, people. Make us, you know, make us go out of our comfort zone. Um, I think that's a great idea. I'd, so maybe I'd, maybe I'd, a couple I'd, of weeks I'd like after. my comfort zone. Yeah, well. <laughs> uh, yeah, we could, we could definitely talk about doing something like that. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Well, something, something to think about for the future. Because we have the SIF shows coming up, and then we'll do the, the Genius of the System thing. Maybe, uh, maybe they should uh, suggest some uh, studio-era films for us to watch in conjunction with genius of the system yeah well I, yeah and I, there's also you know we have our you know blind spots um you know i like for example can someone suggest a bollywood film i've ne- i don't know if, of any bollywood movie like there's so many bollywood movies i can't i don't know where i'm supposed to start so yeah i i i do not either i i think i've seen only one bollywood movie yeah, so I, I think that's really good for us to to focus, you know, on stuff that we're not familiar with, so that we can so that we can even you know uh, we can know less about what we're talking about than we already do. Yeah, I think that is the general <laughs> idea of the show: is to try to know as little about the subject at hand as possible. That's right. So speak, uh, speaking of, of watching things, uh, now is time for what's Mike watching. So, Mike, what are you watching? Yeah. So, well, as I said, I was in California watching baseball for um, a good week, and it was glorious. Um, and I actually, it's it's amazing. I went almost two full weeks without watching a movie, um, which was pretty insane. Um, even in the hotel room, I ended up watching um, like softball. So, but I've been back for a couple of days, and I finally got catching up with uh, the Veronica Mars movie, mm-hmm. which. Um, you know, it, it was kind of a big deal, you know, this Kickstarter-backed, you know, reunion of, of a cult TV show that was canceled um, too soon in some people's uh, uh, minds. Um, and I think it's an interesting film to talk about. The problem is that most of the conversation would go into, you know, the behind-the-scenes stuff or whatever, or, or or fan service that goes on. And the, the movie is clearly intended for fan service. 
Chris. But um, I was a fan of the show. I wasn't a huge, you know, I didn't think it was a great show all the way through. I think the first season of Veronica Mars is fantastic. I think it's, it's, it's almost perfect. And then I think it's kind of diminishing returns from there. So I definitely wasn't one of those people clamoring for um, a reunion of sorts, but um, you know, I, I, th- I thought the, the film did a serviceable job of, of being in the same vein as the show and picking up, you know, 10 years down the road. Um, I believe you saw it too, Sean. Is that correct? Yeah. I thought, I thought the, I thought the movie functioned better as a pilot for a new TV series with the same characters than, than it does as an actual movie. If that makes I agree sense. With you. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, watching it, it, it was, it got better as it went along in, in my opinion, but in the beginning, you know, there are a couple of things right off the bat that I said to myself, well, I bet that got a huge, you know, hoot and a holler in the theater. And I was thinking about movies like this, and this is kind of a fairly new phenomenon of of resurrecting TV shows, whether it's Arrested Development on Netflix or, you know, Joss Whedon's Serenity, which kind of ties up loose ends from uh, Firefly and stuff. And um, it's, it's interesting, these kind of niche, you know, productions now that are clearly and i think this is the worst offender clearly designed for people that know everything about the show i don't think do you think someone what if someone just went cold into the movie they would enjoy themselves i have i have no idea i'm I'm terrible at answering those kind of questions like i I can't i can't imagine what it would be like to watch that without knowing the context but you know people people went to to and watch serenity without having watched the show but serenity and, and does a fine. much much better job i think serenity i think is a, is a stronger film overall anyway and i think the you know the the world and the and the stories is stronger um and and i think that 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 film has less winking nods to the show as as than just being you know a way of like tying everything up so to speak whereas veronica mars was more like it's you know veronica mars has the scene where it's the 10-year high school reunion and this is this movie is the 10-year high school reunion of the show you know what i mean right um so you know i as a fan i felt like it it did what it was supposed to do but it didn't take any chances and for that i was disappointed but that's just me so anyway that's what i was watching besides watching all the junk for this show that we're doing right now uh without further ado um speaking of the junk for this show um our cinema central this week is the theme uh white people in africa and uh right and and i wanted to be you know very specific about this as opposed to african movies because because hatari and and white hunter blackheart are not african movies they're they're very much about white people in africa and there's very little consideration of black people in Africa. So right. to, to me, that is, that is a different subject entirely. And at, at some point on the show, we will we will do a show where we actually watch African movies by African filmmakers. Well, and that's, you know, going back to what you were saying, the, the, the suggestion box, um, that's another, you know, realm that I am not familiar with at all. And so I would love to dive into actual African films um, at some point down the line. So, yeah. So well, now, now, you... now we, we owe it to the continent to, to do that, to, to make up for this week's show. So, 
Right, exactly. Other, <laughs> otherwise, we're racist. Yeah, it well, goes without saying. Yeah. Uh, so that that being said, there there are actually a number of, of white people in Africa movies that I like. And I don't know that there's anything wrong necessarily with making movies about colonists, if that makes sense. Like there, there are white people in Africa movies I like. There are white people in India movies that I like. There are white people in the West movies that I like. And they're, they're all movies that are depicting people who did horrible things to, to non-white populations. But that doesn't necessarily mean they don't deserve to have movies made about them and they don't deserve to have their stories told as well. Oh, absolutely. No, that, yeah, absolutely. So um, what, what, what you want is, is a movie about, about colonists that recognizes the untenability of the colonists' position. The, the, that, you know, doesn't just accept the, the imperialism and the racism at the heart of the colonial experience as a, a given, as a good thing. Right. Which I, th- I think the best movies about colonists do not do that. And I, I think, you know, Hatari, like we, we talked about it in Hatari, like there, there is basically no consideration of, of no. the natives there. And there's no consideration that the white people don't really belong there. Nope, and none whatsoever. Doesn't so I would, I would not say race. that that is a, a anti-colonialist movie at all. I, I would no. hesitate to say that it's, you know, outright racist in the sense that like Birth of a Nation is. But it's definitely uh, not on the on the positive side of, of uh, the political scale, right? Well, it's just that I, it just doesn't engage on those terms. So it's yeah, yeah. Um, so did you have? Was there a film that jumped out as uh, your go to for to encapsulate that idea? Yeah. Well. Not really, because my 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 my, 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 oh, my oh great <laughs> my my two favorites on this subject. Um, one is is very much in in the vein of of Hatari, and that is uh, Out of Africa, which I I still really like despite all of its its uh, obvious flaws as a you know a very fairly generic romantic melodrama. Uh, it's still a romantic melodrama that I that I enjoy. But my, my favorite movie about white people in Africa is uh, a Zulu, Seinfeld's uh, war film from 1964, you know, shortly after Hatari. It's about a, a battle that, that takes place between the, uh, the British army, a very tiny British army outpost, and a massive Zulu army during their, their revolt against the, the British colonists. And basically these, this uh, very small outpost has to hold out for a day and a night and another day while surrounded by by the Zulu. And the only thing that they have, you know, as an advantage is that they have guns and the Zulu are armed with spears. So I have you ever seen this movie? I have not. No. It's uh it's it's one of my favorite war movies and, and I'm a big fan of war movies and it's it's very much in the kind of day to day details of of step-by-step how the British arrange for their defense. And the perspective that we get in the film is almost entirely of the British. Like we don't see like the planning meetings of the Zulu. The the Zulu have very little dialogue. There's a little bit of setup where we're in their camp. But other than that, they are just this, this, you know, massive horde. But even despite that, uh, the, the director, uh, uh, Seinfeld, 
manages to to give them more dignity than than um, you know native tribesmen fighting white people usually get in movies like this. There's there's a kind of mutual respect between the British and the Zulu, and despite you know like the massive slaughter on both sides, uh, there's still you know that they're both sides seem human. Yeah. If that makes sense. It does. Yeah. And, Sounds and really good. yeah, Enfeld was an interesting director. He was blacklisted in the, the late forties and ended up spending most of his career in, in Europe. And, uh, Zulu is, is one of the first films with, uh, Michael Caine. It was one of his first performances. He plays a, a young, uh, a cavalry officer who ends up being like the second in command. And it's a it's a terrific movie. I like it a lot. Yeah, I should check that out. Um, well, for me, you know that 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 two sides kind of deal that you're that you're talking about reminds me of uh, another film that doesn't really it's 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 different from that. Um, you know, in a way, but it's it's set in the northern part of the continent. Uh, Battle of Algiers. Mm which uh, shows sides of the thing. That's not what I picked, but, um, but that's, that's a good movie. Uh, my pick is more on Atari side of things. I didn't really go for like something that talks about colonialism. I thought it was just, I thought our theme was just white people hanging out in Africa. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm actually picking a movie that has nothing to do with any of that stuff that you were just talking about. And so I'm actually going with one of your favorite films, um, uh, I'm going with Casablanca, which uh, which doesn't have anything to do with Africans or colonialism, really. It's just white people. <laughs> um, and none of the movie was filmed in Africa. Um, it was all sound stages and what have you. But, uh, but I feel like the place still has, has something to do with the film. I think it really is part of the and what's going on in there. And uh, I, it say about Casablanca I don't know it's awesome <laughs> yeah I mean there, there there's something to the idea that that the events of Casablanca have to take place somewhere other than Europe that they have to take place in, in one of the colonies and it, it takes place in, in French Morocco like it's I don't I don't know what that is but I I do love Casablanca I think it's a, it's a, an amazing movie I think it's one of the greatest movies of all time and it's it's not just because of its surface charms, like the the great dialogue and, and Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. Although I love all that too, there you know there's there are odd things in Casablanca, and and I think that is one of them. Like this, and it's a it's a it's a very kind of uh, imperialist way to look at Africa as as this the space of uh, of escape and, and lawlessness and where you start again is in in the the colony it's in the middle of nowhere you know despite the fact that people yeah. have lived there for thousands of years uh, yeah but yeah you're absolutely right yeah it's it's a place to get away and uh, and it, it's a feeling that for me it's the I mean, it really does, even if it's all, you know, sound stages and, and you know, fog or whatever. Yeah. But it's, a, yeah, it's a wonderful movie. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, with that, let's, the man of the hour, person of the week, uh, 
director Clint Eastwood, director and of uh, White Hunter Blackheart, which we'll be discussing uh, after this segment. So yeah, Clint, uh, he's a big, he's been around for a long, long time. Um, and uh, what's, you know, what, what, he's known as, you know, we were talking about with John Wayne a second ago, um, you know, the swagger, the tough guy persona. And, you know, Clint Eastwood has kind of embodied that for the last, what, 50 years, 60 years. I mean, the guy's what, 80 something now, 83. Yeah. 50, 50 years, but he, he got a late yeah. start as a, as a movie star. Right. And, uh, but he was on gun smoke in like the fifties, right? Uh, Rawhide. Rawhide. Yeah. I haven't seen any of this, but <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he he was on TV in the '50s, but he didn't really break into movies until the the Sergio Leone films in in the early '60s. Um, yeah, I I I love Clint Eastwood. I love him as a movie star. I think he's amazing as a director. I I am not as in the bag for him as uh, like the the Kaeda Cinema types are, who will uh, hail every new Eastwood film as as a masterpiece. I I hesitate to go there uh but i like a lot i like a lot of his movies you recently saw high plains drifter which is one that i always <laughs> liked and and you did not like it i hate that movie i think that movie's really dumb um i did, actually did we talk about that on the show did we talk about that in, in what's mike watching yeah i think we did for a minute when um yeah, during Western Month. I actually watched two Eastwood films during Western Month. I watched uh, High Plains Drifter, which I absolutely despised. Um, Outlaw Josie Wales, which I liked a little bit more. Well, I, I liked it a lot more because I didn't like the other one, and I grudgingly liked this one. Um, I actually am going to, you know, I'm going to put the stand near the wall and have you shoot me here, but uh, I don't quite understand the love for Clint Eastwood. Um, I like show persona. I, um, and I find that that's, and that's a problem with a lot of his films is I, I, I think that character and the, and his actions and, and the motivations behind really dumb and, uh, it, they annoy me. And then as a director, you know, I've only seen a handful of his things. He's directed quite a lot, you know, um, he's, he's he was done, done a lot of films. like two films a year for for quite a while. He's still doing, yeah. I mean, he's doing. I think. Well, I think has it I been think, every every other year now. Or I mean, he's he's slowed a little bit, but he's still cranking them out. Yeah, um, well, I think I think you know, the idea is that he he's got this kind of dirty hairy man with no name macho persona, but his his films tend to to deflate and, and critique that kind of tough guyness. Like his a lot of his his action movies from the the nineties really emphasize just how old he is and just his body breaking down and his inability to accomplish these things anymore as kind of an embodiment of these of the tiredness of that kind of masculine ideal. And you know, there's there's also uh, my favorites of his are are his westerns, uh, Outlaw Josie Wales and Unforgiven, which uh, Outlaw Josie Wales is is kind of a a revisionist western in the kind of New Hollywood way of modernizing various John Ford 
type tropes about community. And I think it's, it's really fantastic at that. And then Unforgiven, I think, is, is just an astounding movie. It's just kind of burning the Western to the ground and just exposing the, the rotten, violent, anarchic core of, of the John Wayne, John Ford type character. And I need to see, yeah. I need to see Unforgiven because I saw it many, many, many years ago um, before I'd actually seen a lot of Westerns. I, I liked it. I wasn't blown away. I think I'd like it more now um, having, you know, a much larger kind of, you know, picture of the whole of the whole western genre um to work with yeah i'd say, um, I'd say that unforgiven is to the western what touch of evil is to film noir okay <laughs> um i i will probably <laughs> once i rewatch it be like yeah but touch of evil is way better um <laughs> yeah, yeah i i don't know eastwood also is an actor um annoys me um a lot and mm. and there's stuff there's stuff too like in outlaw Josie wales or something whenever clint eastwood tries to be funny uh i i don't think he has a sense of humor or at least his sense of humor is not on my wavelength at all um it's a very crude um cruel kind of humor that um i think is just kind of despicable and i and as as a director him. or as an actor? Well, both. I mean, I think we could talk about it a little bit in the in the next segment, um, a little bit. But um, I, I think one of the choices he makes as a director to to put these quote unquote humorous um, to his movies that for me don't work at all, um, and two, the way he as an actor plays them. I, I also I think they fall they they fall totally flat for me. And I mean, obviously don't think of Clint Eastwood and think humor, but um, unless, unless we're talking Republican national convention or something. Um, <laughs> well, in, uh, improv is not his strong suit for sure. For sure. <laughs> I think, I think he's, he's, he's funny, I think. And uh, in kind of lower key roles, he's, he's very, very dry and very, uh, I don't know. I, I think he's charming and something like, See, like in the, in the line of fire or, you know, even like his cranky old man in uh, Grand Torino. I thought I thought I thought I thought he was funny. I, I haven't seen Grand Torino. I, mm. I I just I it falls really really flat for me, and it might just be a case of you know different wavelengths. You know, I I, I don't want to you know I don't know. I, I mm. Eastwood seems smug to me, but not all that bright and. Uh, and you know it kind kind of annoys me. Hmm. Speaking of kind of annoying me, let's talk about our second film this week, White Hunter Blackheart. Clint Eastwood, White Hunter Blackheart. I don't care if this picture's shot in black and white or sepia tone, or we have to make the whole damn thing in animation. Pete and I are going to Africa. There are times in this life when you can't wonder whether it's the right or the wrong thing to do. Not for guys like you and me, kid. You just gotta pack up and go. John Wilson, a brilliant, don't give a damn type filmmaker who continually violated all the unwritten laws of the motion picture business, yet had the magic, almost divine ability to always land on his feet. 
Paul, I hope I don't have to kill you before this picture's finished. <laughs> he's always been like that. No, he's worse than ever. He's insane. In a well-ordered society, he'd be in a straitjacket right now. If there's half as much love in this old gal as there is talk, I may be dead in the morning. John, give it up. Something terrible is wrong. The man has the fever. It's just like any passion. It's irresponsible and it's destructive. It's a simple paradise here. In fact, I'm seriously thinking of staying here forever. Clint Eastwood, White Hunter, Black Heart. All right, so White Hunter, Black Heart is the very, very thinly disguised story of the making of The African Queen, the 1951 John Huston film starring Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. Uh, Eastwood plays the the John Huston character named John Wilson as the director who is uh, heading off to Africa to make this movie, supposedly to make the movie, but really he wants to go on safari and kill an elephant. And he drags along a uh, young screenwriter, uh, a friend of his from from way back in the day named uh, Pete Verrill, who is the thinly disguised version of Peter Viertel, who wrote the screenplay for The African Queen and also the novel that White Hunter Blackheart is based on. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it came out in 1990 with not too much notice, I don't think. It's, it's one of Eastwood's forgotten films. It's not normally you know, mentioned among his greatest, but it's, it's actually one of my favorites. And it's... I think I think it's just I think it's a really fascinating characterization of of Houston and of of a director and of the idea of of kind of of racism in in Hollywood and liberalism in Hollywood and basically my my like one line if I had to like do like a one line letterboxed review of this I would say that that just because you're not a racist doesn't mean you're not an asshole and yeah you're probably racist too yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So my, uh, my, my wife watched this with me and, and she stayed awake for most of it, but did not make it through to the end. I, I'm, I'm hoping you, you managed to stay awake because it sounds like you didn't really like it. Oh, I, I'll stay awake for anything. I mean, All right. yeah, staying awake is not an issue with me um, and movies. Uh, I did not like this movie uh, yeah, I, <laughs> um, I, I'm trying to temper myself here. I mean, I, I, this isn't, this isn't going to be a case of Mike railing like truth about Charlie or, or something like that. Um, but I did, I could not, once again, as, as I was just saying about Clint Eastwood, I could not get on this movie's wavelength, um, at all. Um, I, I know what the movie was going for and, and, I know it's kind of thesis by the end of the movie, but it was really tedious to get there and also kind of pointless for me. Um, I think, as you said in, in your you know, review that you would write, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to watch this movie because I hate Clint Eastwood's character so much um, for the entire movie. And... Um, that that would make it difficult because I, I think you have to 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 like Houston or or the Houston character, right? 
and or at least to be be fascinated by him. Right, and I'm not like I I think he's super. Annoying. Um, I think all of his friends deserve to punch him in the face. Um, and I there's this, you know, I mean, I'll, a lot of what I you know it, it's intentional, you know, um, to a degree. But like you said, there's got to be some sliver of, of of fascination with that character and and i don't have it like i just i i can't tolerate his uh, uh baloney um throughout this film and he you know these these sermonizing about you know the simplicity how we shouldn't tell our story and and just like kind of going off on these you know long-winded you know speeches where he's he's so in the right you know and he's 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 you know, he's so smug and he's just so proud and it makes me just, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think what you're describing is, is a motion picture director. Yeah, I know, but, but that can be done in a, in an interesting way. And it has on many occasions, these kind of, you know, mega, you know, these maniacal kind of tyrants that, run a, a film can can be really fascinating and i think and this goes to the flip side of this i think eastwood's portrayal here is largely to blame. like i don't buy him in this role i mean mm. i don't buy him this veiled version of john houston i think his mannerisms and voice are really phony the, the voice not. the voice is really is distracting because he's he's not he's, talking like Clint Eastwood he's he's doing a John Houston impression and it it sounds pretty close to John Houston but Clint Eastwood's voice sporadic. is so recognizable that it's it's really it's distracting to see Clint Eastwood and hear him talk like John Houston well so. but it's also spotty it's not consistent through the movie like hmm. he will he will do it like very heightened very kind of showy for a scene or two, but then there'll be the scene, like one of the scenes when they go to get the elephant, he sudden to Clint Eastwood, like gritting his teeth kind of talk for a minute. But then like the next scene, he's trying to then throw a British accent on top of John Houston's accent. And I'm sorry, I don't think he's strong enough to do that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, I, I, I think, and, I think it's one of his better performances. I think, he, I well, think he's great. I, I think he sucks. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you well, know, I think, be... I think he, he tries to humanize the Houston character in interesting ways because he is, he is really pompous and, and really arrogant and he, he's a jerk through, through much of the film, but he's got, he's got the sidekick, um, uh, the screenwriter played by Jeff Fahey who who sees through all of his bullshit all the time and is constantly calling on him and and finally just gets fed up with him and just can't stand to be around him anymore and 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 Fahey is in a lot of ways kind of our the audience surrogate into into the Eastwood character's world and when he gets sick of him you know you you know you're supposed to be sick of him as well yeah, but the problem the... is I was sick of him long before that. Uh, and, and and then the thing is, is that he leaves. That character, you know, is like, I'm fed up with you. I'm taken off, you know. Um, but then he comes back um, and it kind of just plays into uh, Eastwood's character, like, 
I'm always right, you know, and I mean, I know that it climaxes in, in the reversal of that, but I feel like it was too little too late for me um, with that whole reveal at the end, um, or not reveal, but the whole um, lesson learned. Well, I think, I think, I think it, it, that, that ending, which I, I don't know that we want to give away, but I, I think it, it plays really interestingly in, in contrast with kind of the two big scenes that, that take place before that the, the most kind of dramatic moments are when, when, uh, the Houston character is, is fighting against racists. There's one, there's a, an anti-Semitic woman who, is talking about how you know Hitler had a lot of like really great ideas, and he tells like this long story to to put her in her place and and shut her up. And then he gets in a fight with a a, a hotel clerk who's bullying the the Africans who work under him, and uh, he picks a fight with him and then gets his ass kicked. Um, so he's he's you know setting himself up as a non-racist, very kind of liberal defender of, of the weak and, and humanitarian kind of guy. But at the same time, it's, it's his obsession with killing an, an elephant, which is, you know, bad enough just on its own, but it has unintended consequences for, you know, the people around him. And he ends up, you know, creating a lot of tragedy just in his kind of single-minded pursuit of this idiotic quest. Incredibly idiotic. Yeah. I, but my problem is those two scenes, the two I'm not a racist scenes mm-hmm. um, are back to back and it's a, and it becomes the first one is, is pretty decent. But like the problem is, is it becomes kind of heavy handed. It's kind of overkill. Like, because it's literally like he tells this woman off and then the next, the literally the next thing is, um, you know, he he stands up for you know the Africans or whatever in this fist fight with this guy. Right. And, I, I think I think it's, he's overcompensating. He's kind of trying to prove his. Well, I think I think this gets to what I think is like an interesting thing about the film is is that we know that Clint Eastwood is not a, a lefty. He's right. he's very conservative. He's a Republican. He did the you know invisible Obama chair thing, which is is pretty appalling. But it, it seems to me that the that the film that he is making here, he is basically accusing liberal Hollywood of putting on this big show of not being racist and of being left leftist and caring about the poor and, and the minorities and all of that. But he's basically accusing them of just being awful people. And all of that is just uh, fuel for their own egotism. That they don't actually care about minorities they don't actually care about africans they don't actually care about animals they just care about putting forth this image of themselves right well i think that could be an interesting you know uh idea to work out i just feel like the way that it was done in this film was heavy-handed and kind of dumb yeah i mean yeah you know it just it it was just kind of it was it was just kind of dumb. I'm <laughs> sorry. Um, I, there are a couple of moments that I think are actually pretty great film from a filmmaking perspective. Um, and they're uh, 
coincidentally scenes without dialogue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I think like, for example, the editing, there's a scene um, fairly early after they get to Africa where um, there's a soccer game uh, being played. Um, and the goalie for, for the, the white side is uh, the guy he ends up getting in a fight with later. Um, and, and just as a filmmaking uh, perspective or whatever, the, he, the juxtaposition of, he has um, this kind of African music playing where people are like banging on drums and kind of singing this really, you know, kind of beautiful song. Um, and he's cutting it really rapidly with this soccer game where it's a lot of feet, a lot of movement, a lot of dust being kicked up. Um, and then shots to the audience, like cheering on and stuff. And that's a really propulsive kind of exciting scene. Um, just, on its own, you know, not apropos of, you know, nothing else. It's just kind of, you know, an exhilarating piece of work right there. And I think that there's another moment later, and I can't think of what it is off the top of my head, um, where it's another kind of thing like that, where there's um, some real good music coupled with um, some strong imagery that I think works well. Yeah, I, I really love the the final scene. I think it's, it's, it's one of my favorite uh, Eastwood scenes in general, just in his performance and, and just as like a directed piece of action. Um, I mean, we, we don't want to get into spoilers, so I can't really say what happens, but I, I, I think it's, uh, one of his most powerful endings. I really like it a lot. See, I, I wish I could, I wish I could join you on this journey, Sean. Uh, <laughs> but I, I really can't because I, once again, it seemed really obvious to me. Like I, I could, I could see that final line, and I, I won't spoil it. Even though the, I think the movie kind of spoils it, I, I, I could, I could yeah, see I mean, it coming. It, it's 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 inevitable that something like that is going to happen. But I think I think Eastwood plays it perfectly. He's okay in that scene, I guess. Um, he's okay. Uh, um, did you did you get the feeling that that his director character was really really depressed? Uh, so like he's hiding behind this kind like, of like he's low, hoping to get persona. like he's hoping to get himself killed. Yeah, I can I can definitely see that he's you know um, he he's clearly running you know from demons you know he I mean from the from the beginning of the movie he's talking about you know he owes. A, quarter million dollars and you know hopefully i'll be you know my creditors will get off my back when i'm dead in africa or something like that yeah and uh yeah he's he's definitely he's he's got a litany of of worries that he's trying to escape from by going and doing this very manly very hemingway-esque kind of thing yeah um, i think i think i think that really drives him to to be the asshole that he is in the movie. Cause I think he's hoping that somebody is going to shoot him or something or that he'll get trampled by an elephant. And his, his tragedy is that he, he ends up surviving and he has to go on living and he's, he's very upset about that. Do you, th do you think he's upset about it? Cause I feel like, as I think he feels terrible. He, well, I know he feels terrible. I've, I, with you i think he feels terrible but i don't think he feels terrible because he's a survivor i mean see this, this is the tricky part because this is spoiled the ending i don't know if i can really dive into what's i i think he yeah he feels horrible but i think he feels horrible by what transpired and not 
what happens after that. Like, I feel like he's, he, what happened changed his perspective on things to a degree. Um, and now he realizes, oh, that was a total waste of everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, 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 obliquely. and, and what he decides um, is, is the, uh, is is this callback to a discussion they had very early in the film, which is Eastwood wants to end the movie with the plane, the the boat that has Bogart and, and Hepburn on it blowing up and everyone dying. That even uh, and and Jeff Fahey says, you know, you can't do that after the, you know the, all the, that the audience has gone through with these people. You can't just kill them. You know that that you will make them feel miserable. And and Houston's like. You know, fuck the audience. Uh, you know, there is no reason for anything. Things just happen to people, and it doesn't make any sense. And people die, and it's inevitable. And and, this, and then you know what the events of the of the film you know change him to where he decides that that you know the film needs a happy ending, and he needs to to put a happy ending in his movie to kind of compensate for you know this horrible thing that has happened to him. In reality. Yeah, but can't you see that coming a mile away? Well, like if you're if you're honest, like like that. that well, is I so mean, I've seen up. I've seen the African Queen, so I I know how it ends. Yeah, but I'm just saying the way that it's 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 um, laid out in this movie, where it has that setup early on in the film, and when he says that speech in the beginning, you, you're there's an inkling of like, well, I kind of know where this is gonna go. You know what I mean? Um, well, I mean, sure, if if I'm going to, you know, if I'm really going to be concerned about that, it's it's not, you know, a, a surprise. It's not a shocker. But that kind of thing doesn't really bother me in a movie. Like, uh, the kind of, like, poor writing in movies that gets me is, uh, I was watching, I watched Beverly Hills Cop last night. Uh-huh. Uh, cause 1984 movie, we're watching 1984 movies. So I wanted to rewatch that. And this is a movie I've seen, you know, dozens of times throughout my life. Um, but we're watching it and you, you know, Beverly Hills Cop, right? Yeah. The, the criminals are like smugglers and they're smuggling, uh, German bonds basically. So, so Axel Foley goes to this warehouse cause he's going to try and figure out what they're up to. And in like the first two minutes that he's in this warehouse, the bad guys drive up walk into the room where Axel is, they don't see him, they open a box, they take out the bear bonds and show them to where Axel is hiding in the corner so he can very clearly see that they are these bonds. Uh, they put them in a bag, they nail the box shut, they take the box and the bag and they put it back in their van and then they drive up to the customs place. There is no reason for that to have happened <laughs> at all yes. other than to show, you know, to provide evidence for Axel. Uh, there's no reason why they had to open that box in the warehouse. They could have opened it in the van. Uh, there's no reason why they had to like hold the bonds up so Axel could see them. There's no reason why they would be there at the exact right time for him to catch them in the act. Like he spends five minutes on this investigation and the case is blown wide open. It's, it's the laziest kind of, of screenwriting possible that bugs me in movies. Like, but White Hunter Blackheart, you know, setting up a, a kind of philosophical conversation about the endings of movies in the beginning of the film and then following through with it at the end in a perhaps predictable way. But, you know, still, that is the structure of the film. That doesn't bother me. 
don't that was a very long-winded way of, of saying that i don't really care <laughs> about that thing that bothered you <laughs> that's a long way of saying that uh, uh beverly hills cop will not be appearing on your top five list no. <laughs> um yeah but doesn't like i don't know when when like i want to be in a movie like this i would like to have some sort of well, first an emotional connection, but some sort of like uh, change, or that you know, I want I want to go through some sort of catharsis with this character if I'm if I'm buying into this movie, and when I can kind of see coming a mile for me to do that. Um, but you know, yeah, I, I that uh, I did not have that that problem. <laughs> Well, I'm a robot, so there you go. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> All right, that's fine. I'll, I, I, I will allow you to not love this movie. Can't wait till we watch a movie that I loved and you disliked, because I don't think that's come up yet. I mean, we've done like 36 shows now, and there has not been one that I was over the moon for and you just despised. There haven't, there haven't really been any that I didn't really like. Have there? Soderbergh Solaris. Yeah, that was but that was both, the only one. Maybe that's you know them. I think that's why the the futurist wants us to watch some other movies because he wants to hear me <laughs> complain about movies that suck. <laughs> Don't worry, everybody. Sean does a lot of complaining. Uh, just <laughs> he's the grumpiest guy I know. Well, anyway, uh, with that, that's our discussion of White Hunter Black Heart. And uh, I think we need to get funky again. Don't you think, Sean? Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was the least funky answer to my question that you could possibly give. Uh, well, here's some more off of My Life in the Bush of Ghosts.
Okay, thanks, Brian and David. Uh, if you like that album, I also highly recommend their uh, collaboration from like 20 years later, um, Everything That Happens Will Happen Today, um, which is more of a pop album with David Burns uh, singing and, and doing you know, uh, the lyrics and stuff and Brian you know, creating the music underneath. It's a really awesome album. Uh, so next show is going to be, we think we're going to talk about the Seattle international film festival in some capacity. Um, the issue is we don't know when the heck we're going to do that. Um, Sean is gearing up to move. Uh, there have been a few wrenches thrown into the works. Um, and it sounds like a huge pain in the neck and I don't envy you Sean one bit, but hopefully it's okay. Uh, pitch perfect has been there to, to soothe my pain. <laughs> get you through those hard nights I, uh, I, I watched it on back-to-back nights this past week because i was so sad well i'm 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 glad there was something some light at the end of the time and anna kendrick is, is will always be there for me <laughs> um so keep an eye out it'll you know we'll let you know when that next show is going to come down the pipeline i mean it should be roughly two weeks from now but we're just not sure of the date um and we may have a guest on that episode um because we haven't watched any of the sith movies but matt lynch um of scarecrow video and a good friend of the show um has he's watched a bunch of stuff because he's watched like 800 movies so far this year um so he might come on and just run the show because we don't know what we're talking about. Um, you can as, find as out more usual. about the show. As usual. You can find out more about the show um, and these upcoming things by following us on Twitter at GeoSanders Show or going to our website, thegeorgesandersshow.blogspot.com. Um, and hey, we got listener feedback this week. Um, so that's awesome. So if you want to give more feedback, you can always write us an email at thegeorgesandersshow at gmail.com. And, and um, speaking of, of listener feedback, we did get some some iTunes reviews. We, we asked for this uh, a couple months ago um, to give us a, a short little uh, iTunes rating and a, a reasonably competent review. And, and a few people actually followed through and did that. So that was really cool. Yeah, that made my life. Like I, I was seriously <laughs> contemplating taking that pistol up to the shower and just getting it over with after that. Because that really was one of the most gratifying experiences of my life was to see some stupid joke, make it all the way there. So thanks <laughs> to everyone who did that and keep it coming, you know, keep saying reasonably competent, you know, uh, <laughs> I think that's hilarious. Um, <laughs> if you are in Seattle, uh, um, congratulations. It's a beautiful city. Um, I, whenever I leave Seattle um, and go anywhere, um, it, fi- it finally hits me how awesome it is to live here. It's so beautiful. It's green and majestic, and I love the weather, and it's wonderful. So I'm happy to be back, and I'm happy for anybody that can share that with me. And um, at the end of this month, and actually mostly it's taking place mostly at the beginning, the Northwest Film Forum on Capitol Hill is going to be running um, a Godard series. Um, I think it's a pretty small one based on what they're showing on their website currently. I don't know if they're going to add some more later down the line, but um, – the one I'm really looking forward to, and I hope I can get a chance to go see it, is um, Contempt, which is one of my favorites, and uh, is running May third, 30th, excuse me, May 30th through June 3rd, and it's going to be 35 millimeter, and it, that movie's totally awesome. It is. That would be a great one to see in in the theater, even even the little even tiny <laughs> shoebox that is Theater 2 at the Northwest Film Forum. 
it would still be really cool. Yes. Uh, if you are in Vancouver, the uh, the Van City Theater has uh, something that looks interesting coming up, uh, playing May 23rd through the 31st. And I'm just going to read the description here. Uh, it says it's uh, it's called a Final Cut, ladies and gentlemen. Comprised of moments taken entirely from hundreds of the greatest films of all time, visionary Hungarian director Georgi Palfi tells a single story of a man and a woman. To make this astonishing cinematic feat, Palfi devoted over three years in the editing room, expertly blending genres, decades, countries, and stars into a unified whole. From Marilyn Monroe to Jackie Chan, from Ozu to Lynch, and from the 1920s to the millennium and back again, this incredible collection illustrates the history of romance as told by the movies. So that sounds pretty cool. It sounds pretty insane. Yeah, a bunch of movies cut together. It's it's in English, Hungarian, French, and Cantonese. Sounds pretty pretty bitchin'. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I I would I would go see that if I was in Vancouver. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really really cool. Yeah. Um, well, with that, um, we're gonna take it out today. We're not going with George. Um, as, as sad as it is, um, but sticking with our white people in Africa. The ultimate, um, the ultimate the white ultimate person in white Africa. The ultimate white person in Africa. <laughs> Paul Simon is here to uh, let you know that you can always call him out. Uh, we'll see you next week or next time or when that happens. Um, take care. You're the best. <laughs> <laughs> Even when you're correcting my pronunciation. Why am I soft in the middle now? Why am I soft in the middle? The rest of my life is so hard. I need a photo opportunity. I want a shot of redemption. Don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard. Bone digger, bone digger, dogs in the moonlight. Far away, my well-lit door. Mr. Beer Melly, Beer Melly, get these mutts away from me, you know. I don't find this stuff amusing anymore. If you'll be my bodyguard, I can be your long-lost pal. I can call you Betty. Betty, when you call me, you can call me out. A man walks down the street, he says, why am I short of attention? Got a short little span of attention, and all my nights are so long. Where's my wife and family? What if I die here? Who'll be my role model now that my role model is gone, gone? Be duck back down the alley with some roly-poly little bat-faced girl. All along, along, there were incidents and accidents. There were hints and allegations. If you'll be my bodyguard, I can be your long-lost pal. I can call you Betty.
speak less.